Christian worldview, that concept is, um, it's a double-edged sword because yes, we want to be able to view everything in the world through a biblical lens that is informed by our faith. But at the same time, because of human nature, it's so easy to then try to create a system that gives us easy answers to everything that we then claim come from God. And really what we're doing is recreating God in our own image. And that's what leads to the kinds of things that Jonathan talked about with white American folk religion. It's, it's what leads to these systems of oppression and violence because we start to fight for a God that is not real, that is really just us worshiping ourselves and trying to create the world that is most comfortable for us that benefits us. And so that's that's really what I try to kind of dig into in my piece and specifically in the United States, again, linking back to Jonathan, what that looks like right now is white supremacy. Mm. That this idea of white Jesus, that's not Jesus. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. That's not the God that we worship. And so that's really kind of the entry point for me into this whole conversation. I have a heart full of questions, quieting all my suggestions. What is the meaning of Christian in this American life? Hey there, everybody. I know it's only been a day, maybe two, three. Who knows? This is the internet, so you could be listening to this like three years later than when I am recording this introduction. But I had said on social media the other day, and if you don't follow the show on social media, uh, this will be news to you, um, and you should probably follow the show on social media, that I had a couple episodes planned and or recorded and or ready that were extra and slightly different intentionally than what normally happens on the show. So this is the first of these, and then Monday is the second. So there has been tremendous feedback from Dr. Backhouse from just a few days ago on politics, faith, and the way of Jesus. And that is a pivotal and very important conversation that we had, at least for many of the people that listen to this show in North America, specifically the United States, and how our votes matter and how our politics matter. It's a bigger conversation. We spoke for over an hour in a part one of a multi-part conversation there. So you should go back and listen to that. However, you will have seen me sharing bits and pieces of a book called Keeping the Faith, which is really an anthology of dissent. And as the editors will say, that unites the voices of believers across America who fall outside the narrative. And that narrative is one that our culture has made us all believe that everyone on the right is the other or everyone on the left is the other. And that's a lie. It's a collection of humans that really feel like politics and faith are so much bigger than what we've made them this year and in the years past. Hopefully it's the beginning of a new generation of people coming together to maybe imagine what we should be doing instead. So I brought on Sai Hookstra, Susie Laud, and Jonathan Walton, who were the editors of that book. And we had a conversation about it, how it happened, why it matters. So here we go, two in a week. And I know that we're getting political and I know how uncomfortable that is. And it's because it matters. It's because it matters. Let's do it. All right, so full disclosure, 
with the with all of you. Welcome all of you to the show. I'm gonna try to say everybody's names um, correctly. I just practiced one time before we hit go, and I try to be authentic here. So let's do this. So, Sai Hookstra, Susie Lahoud, and Jonathan Walton. Jonathan, welcome back. I'm happy to have all three of you on the show. I told you all a minute ago. I'm terrified of how to actually have a conversation with this many people at one time, but we will figure it. We'll figure it out. So. I don't even know how to go first. Um, so I'm just going to start clockwise at the top. Sai, if you could tell us just a bit about yourself, who you are, what makes you you, and then Susie will do you and Jonathan will do you last just because people can go back in the show notes. I'll link somewhere, somewhere, and they can go back and learn a bit more about you. If yeah, So yeah, Sai. Sure. So I'm uh, Sai Hoekstra. I live in New York with my wife. I am, I'm an attorney uh, by day, I suppose. I'm a public defender in the child welfare system. I've worked in, in a couple other jobs. Um, I met Jonathan as an undergraduate in InterVarsity, uh, where he works now. And uh, I met Susie just a few months ago when we started working on this book project that we're gonna be talking a little bit about today. How long have you done public defender work? Uh, about two and a half years. That's what you went to school to do? Or later uh, on you're like, yeah, that's what I wanna do. It is what a lot of people go into law school uh, wanting to do from day one. It was not what I had in mind. I fell into it, but um, I have liked it a lot. It's really hard work, but I've liked it. Yeah. Susie, what would you want people to know about you? Well, I guess uh, I a little bit of my background. I am a pastor's kid and a missionary kid. I grew up in Uzbekistan, lived there for 10 years from age 8 to 18. So that's kind of my, my context from my formative years. And then I lived in Lebanon for seven and a half years. I first moved as a missionary with crew and then got involved in humanitarian work in response to the Syrian crisis. I met my husband there at a Bible study and he and I have uh, served together in that ministry for, for around years and then moved back to the States just a few years ago. Mm. So that, that's a little bit about me. Yeah, Jonathan. I'm just glad to be a part of this again. <laughs> Can I say this is a church one of my favorite podcasts? Um, and I got looped into this project because I called Susie because Sai told me to call her. And I said, <laughs> I would love to be a part of keeping the faith. And now I, it is, if you had told me three months ago that I would be working a reverse schedule, taking care of children amidst COVID and editing essays by amazing leaders from all over the world, I would say you were lying. But I'm really glad that I can write and parent amidst the crisis yeah. and feel effective. So I'm grateful for all that's happening right now. So I think what I'll do, I'll just ask questions and whoever wants to answer, just jump in and I'm going to let you all be equitable amongst yourself because I don't want to try to keep a tally of who I'm asking, <laughs> whatever. So Jonathan, you named the name of the book and um, full disclosure for those listening, I wrote a piece in that book. However, I don't really, not really interested in talking about that unless y'all want to. I'm not at all. I, I, I struggle with, with confidence in anything that I have to say. However, so keeping the faith, what is the purpose of the book? Why did the three of you kind of connect and go, this is a thing that needs to happen. It needs to happen tomorrow. So why kind of the purpose and the reasoning and the steamroll that came behind the book? So I feel like this is something that um, was really building since 2016 and even before that. So I think part of how we were able to put this together in such a short amount of time was that folks have been wrestling with these things 
for, for so long. And it's been, like I said, just sort of building up in them. And so the way this project got started specifically was, I mean, like any great thing, it was in the text community and, and really started as a conversation among friends about how difficult it is right now in the United States to be a faithful follower of Christ and not be slapped with the label of Trump supporter mm. and um, how frustrating it is that many of us feel that he does not represent us or our values and that that's not the, the general narrative that's out there. And so the way that we did the, the idea behind this book is that really the goal is to reclaim that narrative around what it means to be a faithful Christ follower in the United States. And so, yeah, it started as a conversation and then um, it was me and some friends from church and we felt like this was a message that would resonate with other people, that there were more people out there who felt the same way. And so I started reaching out to some folks, got in touch with Cy through a mutual friend, um, Cy in touch with Jonathan, and it just kind of snowballed from there. And like you said, it was a lot in a very short period mm -hmm. of time. There were a lot of short uh, sleepless nights and some really exciting responses and an amazing group of people that then came together to, to make this happen. As I was reading through the table of contents, the essays that were submitted, so there's, I forget how many there are, 30, 32. 36. That, that's the number I was going 36. for. And so they're broken up into like subcategories. Did that kind of happen naturally where it was like, yeah, I'm glad that everybody accidentally, holy spiritually got on the same page and we were able to evenly break the book apart. Like how did that kind of, as you're reading through and editing things where you realize, oh, this, well, this is coming together nicely. Like how did that happen? You know, that's a good question. I think we might be able to ask the same question, honestly. <laughs> um, it, it just worked out. I mean, you know, a lot of people had similar themes throughout their essays. You know, some of the subjects we cover very explicitly, immigration, uh, abortion, race, um, people just wrote on that because that's what they felt compelled to write on. And so those those made nice groups. Uh, and then I, I think everything else just kind of fell into place. You know, we have a section on political discourse and one on discernment in voting. And it, it, they were just themes that uh, a lot of the people who wrote in uh, happened to hit upon. Uh, it worked out very well for us, obviously. We, we didn't give anyone granular instructions on what topics to write about. It was sort of, why is it that you feel that Donald Trump doesn't uh, represent or isn't going to get your vote? And um, things just worked out that way. Yeah. Jonathan, we danced around this the last time that you were on, but I, I think as I've, so I've read through half of the book, full disclosure, I'm like y'all, I'm sure you, I, I just read a lot of books. And so it's hard to devote between COVID uh, being my kid's teacher. And mostly that's my wife. And I just come in afterwards and check the math, the actual math, not the science or anything else, just the math. Um, I like, I just don't have enough time. So the overarching theme, um, fits so nicely with the narrative of the white American folk religion that you speak about in your 12 lies book. And so for people that didn't know that that book exists, can you kind of name what that is? Cause I think it does set a good context for a theme that kind of runs through at least a lot of the essays and chapters that I've written. One of the reasons that I said yes to doing the book was because of what you just talked about. So I mean, you said, how did the book come together? And I think, we, we ask ourselves, like, how do buffets get made, right? 
but buffets are just like places where food is right and it's like this is the best of the selections that we have right and people can kind of get to decide but the people who are going to come like a lawyer is not going to come to a buffet and offer anything because he writes briefs he doesn't write recipes right and so all of the people that were 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 offering things were bringing like bread for the resistance you know um and so i actually chose the content for my essay near the end because you're right like the the white american folk religion is kind of similar to what i've talked about in the past is white american folk religion is the container where all of these ideologies live because it's under whiteness there's a race-based class-based gender-based hierarchy that is at, at work in the united states all the time it's codified it's in the constitution it's in our founding documents in the constitutional congresses like it's written down um it's not difficult to find because of google and even easier google scholar like it's written out for us the the meeting notes and things like that um america is just the place where that has been perfected like there's no other place where capitalism and um a heretical form of christianity and patriarchy have come together in a way that just dominates our entire society um and then folk religion i say because um it's actually the ideology that's that's the root of it like the the idea that someone sat down in, in portugal and said hey this is what racism is right you know, they didn't say that language you just said that these people are beastly and these people are not and everything that flows out of that where you have this this crushing of the image of god and people who are other than us um and so i think the book is the outworking of that when you're able to dehumanize the unborn you're able to dehumanize the lgbt community you're able to dehumanize people in the quote-unquote muslim world you're able to dehum like as soon as you're able to dehumanize them i think it's gloria steinem or another um, feminist who says that dehumanizing someone is a, the first step in committing violence, justifying violence against them. Mm. And so I think we, we, we have that, that container that holds the book together because it holds America together. And if we're going to talk about politics, which is people and power, then white American folk religion is a container that America operates in. Yeah. Susie. So I read your essay today, actually, um, because I had not read it prior and I wanted to be a little bit better prepared to talk to you tonight. Um, I was not prepared um, for some of the stories there, but I'm finding that to be the case with every essay that I read so, so many times. And I'm beginning to, to leech and, and we'll just say plagiarize um, other people's themes as I talk with people that are in my older circle being from West Texas. Yeah, I, yeah, I can't tell you how many arguments I have about so many different things, but you talk a lot about idolatry and just a fine tuning of spirituality and just like the lens of idolatry. Can you, can you talk a bit about what you wrote in the book? Cause I, I found it really, really powerful. And then side, just so you know, I'm going to ask you the same question, just if you want to get your head right. Um, so yeah. Can you go into that just a bit? Yeah. So um, my piece is called when, when religion becomes idolatry and, and basically the idea, and I feel like it, it overlaps a lot with the things that Jonathan's been writing about and talking about for years. And, and by the way, this is another thing about this book is that it's not just about the Trump era. It's really an opportunity to speak to all of these other things that have been going on um, politically and in terms of these 
spiritual sensations that we've been handed that maybe are not really reflective of, of who God is and, and what the Bible actually teaches. And so what my essay gets into is, is this idea that Christian worldview, that concept is, um, it's a double-edged sword because yes, we want to be able to view everything in the world through a biblical lens that is informed by our faith. But at the same time, because of human nature, it's so easy to then try to create a system that gives us easy answers to everything that we then claim come from God. And really what we're doing is recreating God in our own image. Mm -hmm. And that's what leads to the kinds of things that Jonathan talks about with white American folk religion. It's, it's what leads to these systems of oppression and violence because we start to fight for a God that is not real, that is really just us worshiping ourselves and trying to create the world that is most comfortable for us that benefits us. And so that's that's really what I try to kind of dig into in my piece and specifically in the United States, again, linking back to Jonathan, what that looks like right now is white supremacy. Mm. That this idea of white Jesus, that's not Jesus. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. That's not the God that we worship. And so that's really kind of the entry point for me into this whole conversation. Yeah, Sai, so really your voice, I have to think, is just mixed into the introduction, correct? I don't that's know. True. I don't know what, yeah. So I'm curious if you were writing a piece right now to be inserted in as the next chapter, like what would you say from what you've seen just from launch to now? Like what would you add if you're like, yeah, you know what? There was one more thing that maybe we needed to say, something else that needed to be pressed in on harder. You know, we've had debates since this book has released. I had another one last night in which the fly stole the show, which is hilarious. I did not watch the debate. Instead, I actually talked um, with the young lady about being a good white racist, which is a fantastic book. If none of you have read it, it's a fantastic book. Um, it's a very tongue-in-cheek book. But um, Jonathan, you would love the book. But what would you add, like, Sai, if you were redoing re re something or trying to add something, you're like, yeah, this needs to be further pressed in on. I think one thing that a few of our contributors touched on uh, was the idea of the idolatry of power in the American church and how we are so distracted from anything that looks like the mission of Jesus and uh, the mission that's set forth for us, the Great Commission, because of how focused we are on our political power. One of our essayists, a, an anonymous pastor, uh, explained in his essay why he has to write anonymously, and it's because even though he's a missionary, uh, overseas, planting churches, spreading the gospel and all that. He in the past has had funding cut for making what are frankly very mild political statements uh, in opposition to you know Republican policy or perceived Republican self-interest. And so you know when we are at the point where we are cutting off funding for the Great Commission because someone has said something as light as his example was, uh, that Franklin Graham should go back to preaching the gospel and stay out of politics. Hmm. Um, we're in trouble. <laughs> yeah. We're in a place where we have put have put our kingdom over the kingdom of God. And I think um, a, a couple of our contributors also, you know, mentioned that famous speech that Donald Trump gave uh, during the campaign, where he said that he could uh, go out onto Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and wouldn't lose a single <laughs> one of his followers. And, but you know, at, at another point in that speech, he basically was promising evangelicals very explicitly 
that if I'm president, you will have power again. Mm -hmm. You will continue to have power. You will be safe from all of the forces in the country that are uh, making you feel like you're losing that power. I will, I will save you from them. Yeah. Um, I think that maybe would be something that we could expand on more. Like I said, a number of our contributors touch on it, but um, it, that, that idea Christianity will have power if you vote for me. Um, yeah. I yeah. think it's something we could have focused on. Some of the pushback that I've gotten as I've um, quoted bits and pieces of the book are, I am advocating for the opposite side of the binary, that a speaking out against ev- uh, evangelicalism and Trump in specific is an advocate for the opposite party, uh, which I try to remind people, I don't like Joe Biden. <laughs> I'm not a fan. Um, you know what I mean? Just personally, I have a lot of issues there. However... I'm curious y'all's thoughts on that there. Like how is speaking out and saying Trump does not represent the best of Christianity. Um, I'm not sure that any of us at all times represent the best of Christianity, but how, how would you respond to people who are like, yeah, when you, when you say that you're just implicitly endorsing the other side. Well, we, we have people from uh, all over the political spectrum in the book, right? I mean, we have an article from David French, who's a lifelong Republican, um, who's just an ever Trumper. It, it, the argument is that this particular administration, this, this man is a manifestation of something that's maybe been building for a long time, but uh, is a particular danger to the witness of the church, to the country, to whatever it is that you're arguing. Um, the people in our book come at it from all different angles, um, from very diverse perspectives. Uh, you know, it's ethnically diverse, it's men and women, it's people from uh, lots of different evangelical traditions, a couple of non-evangelical traditions as well. And nobody is arguing specifically for the Biden-Harris ticket. That's not true. Some people are arguing specifically for the Biden-Harris <laughs> ticket in our book. But um, that is not the only reason that we wrote the book. It's not, it's not you have to go be a Democrat now. Mm-hmm. It's that you have to be a disciple of Jesus. And a lot of us, counter to the narrative that you hear in the media, a lot of us in the church believe that that means you need to withdraw your support from Donald Trump. Mm. Yeah, I think for me, the the response to the question would, if I had time, would be what Sai said, depending on the time and depth of the relationship. Um, if I'm on Facebook or if I'm on uh, with family, um, I think what I would say is your question is evidence of that what I'm saying is true. Because if I say that we need to follow Jesus and you conflate that with not voting the way you vote, then you've put the two together. You're proving the point of the entire text that like, if I say don't vote for Trump, I'm automatically against you. I'm automatically against what you stand for. I'm automatically against your way of life. I'm automatically against your flourishing. I'm automatically against everything that you believe, which is not true. What I'm saying is that Trump is asserting that he is a divine candidate. Biden hasn't done that. Mm. Like that, that, that specifically is the injury point for me. Like the Republican Party, starting with at least in the American context with Jerry Falwell and going further back with Eisenhower and all these other people that have done it, but like there's an explicit endorsement in today's era that he is God's candidate and he says he's God's candidate, and there are people around him saying he's God's candidate. And that is where I think Christians have to rise up and say, no, Bill Clinton never said he was God's man. Obama never said he was God's man. Hillary Clinton never said she was God. He, she was God's woman, right? This is a very specific call, I think, 
for prophetic witness and leadership. You know, Susie has more to add. Oh, well, I was just going to add from from my experience of living in Lebanon, and then interestingly enough, feedback I've gotten from Lebanese friends about the book, and specifically on, on Facebook, so without them having actually read it, and some of them have commented, like, isn't it dangerous to combine religion and politics? Shouldn't we go as far away from that as we can? And also referencing the idea of separation of church and state in the United States, which, you know, these are my Lebanese friends pointing to that. And of course, Lebanon is a case study on the dangers of sectarianism. Mm. and tying together any sort of political party got. And and I would just echo what Jonathan was sharing, that actually this is a response to that, that that is such a dangerous thing. And we're not speaking out as Christians because we think that you should complete your, your religion with your political party or your faith with, with your political party directly. We think that your faith should inform your values and how you choose to cast your ballot. But when you have a party that claims to be the de facto party of God, mm. that is such a danger to our society. And that's what we're seeing here. And that's what we're, we're attempting to, you know, hopefully in a thoughtful and nuanced way call out. But having said that, another, I think, misconception about the book in general is that this means that we hate Trump supporters. And I feel like that's also... <laughs> Such a sad commentary on yeah. where I think this administration has brought us to the point where you can't disagree with someone in love. It's always about a personal attack. And I think that that's one thing we've seen come out of the, the debates recently is that it all becomes ad hominem. And that's not what this is about either. I, we, we talk about this in the intro to the book that we hope we can return to a place where you can lovingly disagree on things. Mm. Um, obviously, we express some some strong opinions in the book, but we don't we don't hate Trump supporters. We wrote this book for Trump supporters that we know and love dearly, and this is our love letter to them. It's it's our plea. Yeah, yeah. I uh, so most of my family are Trump supporters. Many of my close friends are Trump supporters, and I don't hate any of them. Yeah, and if anything, I wish that we could hear each other again. Someone asked me if you. I don't know, six or seven months ago, like if you could snap your fingers and something change, what would it be? I was like, I, would just, I just want us to be able to hear each other again because everybody's yelling and nobody's hearing and it's so frustrating. Uh, and even you'll have that inside the, uh, the, the fundamentalist version of either side of the Christian coin, the ultra conservative or the whole ultra not conservative. Like it's just people yelling in echo chambers. So I think, I think you're absolutely right. I hope that we can learn how to do that. I'm not certain that we can. Like, I honestly have no idea. Um, what's funny is, so today after the flu shots, I went to vote, and my son asked me, who are you going to go vote for? Because um, I don't feel like standing in line on November, um, I think it's 3rd, 4th, whatever date that it is. 3rd. <laughs> so uh, I'm not good with the calendars. Yeah, so he asked me, he's like, who did you vote for? And I said, well, I'm not going to tell you. And the nice thing about America is we have a secret ballot. And he laughs. He's like, you realize that like, you said who you're not going to vote for in this book that's apparently on Amazon. And so I don't know why you're being so cagey. I was like, fair enough, fair enough. But I'm trying to teach them how to ask questions. I'm not trying to teach them. I want to teach them how to think, not how to vote, if that makes any sense at all. So I want to, I want to pivot, but before I do, I want to ask a question. So was there an essay or a chapter, and I'm not sure which version of that word is appropriate for the way that the book is formatted, that when you three read it, you're like, Mm, I got to put this down. I'm going to need a minute to chew on that. Like, is there anything that when you read it, you're like, yeah, this, 
this hurt, like this, this was, you know, this was prophetic or whatever the word that you want to use it just personally, if you're willing to share that. And you may not be. The book ends on uh, a piece by Timmy Spencer. Um, that's, it's called the grief unobserved. And it's basically about her journey, uh, you know, in a white church, uh, between the time that Trayvon Martin was murdered and the election of Donald Trump and her whole journey of, you know, getting somewhat close to losing her faith over the complete inability of the people around her to see her own pain. Um, which is, a, I think a story that, uh, you know, a lot of people of color have felt in, in white churches over the past several years, but, um, she's just such a beautiful writer. Uh, I think we all agree on that one. There's probably a couple others that we agree on, but I'll, I'll let the others talk. Hmm. Um, yeah, for me, there are two, um, and one I'll be brief about the one, other one I'll talk a little bit longer. Um, the QAnon one, um, yeah, Matt Lumpkin, I, I actually, I did a devotional around it for our daily arrow podcast that works with our, that, that lifts essays from the book going up to the election. And I was struck by like the, what I juxtaposed it with in scripture was the woman with the issue of blood. And I feel like in America, there's this desperate sense to be right and to win. Um, mm which I don't necessarily encounter with other Dem other countries and people like that I meet. Like I don't sense necessarily that my wife who's Chinese and Korean, that she's trying to win and be right. Like on this cosmic level, um, my friends from El Salvador, like it's just not, it's just not there, but here, like that's, it's definitely the case. And, and so at least this desperation, and um, so I was struck by the QAnon essay because I think when we are lost, we reach for things that to just try to make things make sense. The one that the one that really hit me, um, I think that I was blindsided by was an anonymous essay by a Palestinian Christian who mm. was in a prayer circle, and she asked them in a circle in Florida, asked them to pray for revival in her country, and they said no your people are not chosen. Mm. Some people are made for honor and some are made for dishonor. And I thought to myself, like, wait a minute. Like, how? I'm imagining her teenage self. You know, you're in a prayer circle. You're holding hands. People are going around. And then you are pushed out, you know, and mm. forced to be in the room but not be of the room. And that was difficult. My my RA when I was a freshman at Columbia was Palestinian. And he would talk about what apartheid in Israel looks like, which is still an operation today. I wasn't expecting that uh, because I haven't lived that reality. I'm black in America, which is a different reality, but it's not it's not the same as being an Arab in Israel. Yeah. Susie yourself? Honestly, so many hard-hitting pieces. I would definitely echo to me Spencer's. When her piece came in, I, I just wept at my computer. Mm. Uh, definitely powerful. I would say also Brandy Miller's piece, and and I actually quote it in in a blog piece that was published today on on Red Letter Christian, just because it's so so hot on and and the way that she goes through kind of 
some of the history through her own personal narrative of how the American evangelical church got to where it is today. She kind of brings you through that, that story through her own experience. And uh, it's just such an important read. And then also in, in a similar vein, Don Sontag has a really powerful piece at the beginning of the book that also is her personal journey through the decades of watching these these heresies take hold in the church yeah. and kind of sensing that that atmosphere is is changing over time. And honestly, the way that I think about this sometimes is almost like the frog in the boiling water phenomenon mm. that I think yeah. we, we kind of don't even realize how far we've come because this has happened over time. But the temperature has continued to rise. And I think she just tells that story so beautifully and in such a personal way that it just it hits you hard. It hits you in the gut. Truly you said we were equal. Everyone's heart is deceitful. Everyone born is illegal. When love is the law of the land. Coming to you for the hungry. Eating the scraps of this country. Didn't you swear you would feed them? Tell me you won't make them go. I used that frog metaphor today at work. So there was a lull in between, and I've been acting. I worked at a, at a bank for, I don't know if any of y'all know that, or I, Jonathan, I think you know that. But outside of that, um, I was being a teller today, and there was a lull for like an hour, and somehow or another we got on the topic of religion, which when you get me on the topic of religion at work, like at the end of it, the the, the person that was filling in, helping out, she was like, you are good at banking. She's like, but you really like that. I was like, yeah. She's like, you're, you're passionate in a way that you aren't when you talk about money. I was like, well, good. Hopefully that's, that's the goal. But she kept asking me all these questions about evangelicalism and fundamentalism and my views on different things. And again, I was leeching topics or, or, or thoughts from some of the other essays because so many of them are fantastic. And she kept asking me questions and all I kept asking her to do. I was like, well, why don't you get on the computer and you tell me when that view actually started? And as she started to notice, she's like, so these are all like early 1800s. Like a lot of these aren't very old. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, like, what does that mean for you? She's like, I don't know what to do with that. I was like, well, chew on it, and we'll we'll talk about it in a week or so. Like, that's an important question, and I'm not going to tell you what to think for that um, because it's just not my job, and it's probably not your pastor's job because he's continuing to perpetuate, or she is continuing to perpetuate. Everybody listens, whether or not they've read the book. The church wakes up to prophetic voices and says, yeah, this is not healthy for the church and it's not healthy for the country. It's not the way that we should treat other human beings and so much of the way that this current administration does things. And they vote for Biden and it is March 13th, just to pick a random date. What is the church's voice when they've aligned themselves? How does the church protect themselves from blindly aligning themselves for another four years to another political party that just isn't Republican? if that makes any sense at all. Like, I don't want to see, like May comes up and we're like, oh, dang it, we did it again. We did it again. But some social things feel better, but now all these other issues are a problem. So just a clarifying question about your metaphor. You picked March 13th. You said Biden won the election and is actually in office? Or Listen, I just, I, I know that inauguration is in like office? January 20. Yes, that would be, yeah, yeah, assuming that people listen, they vote for Biden, they don't vote for Trump since the, the book yep. overarchingly is saying we can't vote for Trump. So yep. yeah, assuming that that happens, all of these 
hopefully followers of Jesus and, and, and other faiths as well realize, yeah, we can't treat people this way. We can't be an administrator. We can't be an empire because the Bible is full of prophetic visions and stories about what happens when empires come to power and they don't last very long and they oppress people and we always yeah. miss the narrative and the story. So how does the church kind of protect itself against leeching themselves onto a different narrative of just a, the other side of the coin? I'll jump in first because I have so many thoughts about this. When my first book, or when the last book that I wrote before this one came out, I had a conversation with about 25 people from a wealthy church in New York City. And I did what I normally do. We have a very open discussion, and there's usually one person that's pretty contentious, and then we break down their argument in front of other people, and they kind of realize they're standing in front of a wall, and they can't go anywhere, hmm. right? And so he said, you know, we need a new political party, one that really represents Jesus well. And I said, great, awesome. Tell me about the. He said, well, I've actually gotten a group together that we're going to form a new political party. And I said, I said, that's great. I said, how many people in your group have no college degrees? And he goes, well, all of us have degrees, advanced degrees. I said, great. I said, okay. Well, how many of the people in your, your room are women? He goes, ah, none of them. I said, okay, well, how many people um, don't make you know, make, make less than $50,000 a year. Like who's in that group forming that? He goes, no, nobody. And I said, oh, like I, and then there were more questions like that. But I suspect in March of next year, what we will have are different factions of people calling for something new or reflecting the same idolatry because it's just March. But later, I do think because of the democratization of information, when we look back, there's going to be a groundswell of people, much like in Acts, people that existed under empire because women will still be oppressed under Biden. Mm -hmm. People of color will still be oppressed under Biden. People will still not have health care under Biden. There will still be trillions of dollars in debt under Biden. Like these things will still exist. I'm sure Susie can say much more about foreign policy under Biden. Mm -hmm. um, but we, I think what will happen is we will begin to form factions in the church based on the place in which where we sit. But there were then there will still be people who are prophetically calling that out. Cause I just, you know, to borrow from Brueggemann, like our prophetic imagination is severely lacking mm. for sure. Yeah. I see you. I see you thinking, what do you want to say, Susie? I saw your mouth open and then close and then open. and then close. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess the, the two words that come to mind for me are don't moving forward. What I want to say to the church is don't be complicit and don't be complacent. So we need to constantly be questioning these narratives and disrupting the conversation and seeking after truth. I think we somehow fell into this lie that truth is easy, that it's always readily apparent, and it, it's hard to seek after what the truth of God is and what the truth is that he's calling us to live out in our daily lives. And then once you've found it, it's even harder to actually be accountable to that and to hold your leaders accountable to that. And so I think that's where the church needs to play that prophetic role and be that prophetic voice. And Jonathan touched on foreign policy. I mean, it was so interesting that the pieces in our book on foreign policy and the voices coming particularly from the Middle East, because if I'm honest, I think that's where we have done a lot of our damage over the past few decades as, as an empire, 
And, and I've personally witnessed some of that. And I have brothers and sisters who have definitely witnessed that and have been victims of that. And a lot of what you'll hear in their pieces is that these things definitely predated the Trump era. Mm. And they're not optimistic that they will discontinue if Trump is voted out of office. And so that that's a wake-up call to the church. Again, Trump is just a moment mm. where we need to snap our fingers and wake up. But there's so much more than just what's happened over the past four years that we need to have our eyes open to. And so I think there are a lot of difficult conversations that need to be had. And, and I hope and pray that we will have those conversations, that we won't shy away, that we won't say, okay, we've done the thing. Now we can just relax it back into our easy lives of, of not questioning the damage that we're doing to those who are not like us yeah. and who live in other places but who are also created in the image of God and loved by him that we need to be accountable to upholding the Imago Dei and, and loving them. Sai, yourself, anything to add to that? I just think that we really need to reverse direction on how we view the power that we hold and specifically how the white church views the power that we hold and, and adopt a model that is less like protecting our own power and protecting our own self-interest and more about the giving up of power that is modeled by Jesus. Mm -hmm. And um, I think if we adopt more of that perspective, more of those practices, then that will sort of protect us against making, continuing to make these same mistakes over and over again. Yeah. I ran a thought experiment with a good friend a couple weeks ago. He asked me, if you could change anything to make the church wake up, what would you do? And the only thing I could come up with and I don't know that I'm happy with it, but it, 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 it made me, it gave me a lot of pause was, I wonder what it would look like if no one in Congress or politics at a federal level was Christian at all. If Christians were the minority at a national level, like what that would do to make the church genuinely wake back up and go, oh, we're reading the Bible through a lens of an oppressed minority group. And it maybe changed the way that we think about the Bible. I have no idea if that would work or not. I don't even know if mathematically it's possible just because of how big Christianity is in America. What, Jonathan? I see you. I have, I don't know if you should edit this out or not. I have a very- <laughs> I don't know how to edit video. So before you no say words. it. <laughs> yeah. I have a really, a really strong reaction now. Mm. More than I did before when people say like, well, all of these folks are Christian, mm. right? <laughs> like, I just like- These folks, what do you mean these folks? Like, um, uh, so, wait, so you just said like, oh, like so many of them are Christian. Right? They say they are. I'm gonna take them they at their word. I don't know these no, people. No, no, I, no, I, I know, right? <laughs> and so I, I, I just, I, I need to study the Bible some more on this. But there is, there's something powerful to me about Jesus in Matthew 23, and when he just calls a thing a thing, he's like, "You brood of vipers, mm. you whitewashed tombs." Like you snakes are doing this. And I, I think that is an in-house believer conversation. When someone says, I am a Christian, then we should be able to take the glove off and call gloves off and call for faithfulness mm. and say, where is the fruit? Right? Because my book is not the first chapter of 12 lies is not about why 
the U.S. is not a Christian nation because of the fruit of what happens. It's actually because of Jesus's great commission and the call of God, right? But if we want to talk about fruit, right, right, it's like, why do we have such a disembodied faith where someone can claim they're a follower of Jesus, yet do things that are completely antithetical and never be held accountable, yeah. right? That, to me, is the, like, the bullshit that I'm like, can we just call a thing a thing? Like, for example, like, the Bible says, if you hate your brother, you cannot claim to love God. That's what it says. You, like, if you hate your brother that you see every day, you cannot claim to love God. It also says, like, the Bible doesn't say everybody's a child of God. Because Ephesians 3 says, like, once you were a son of the devil, now you, like, you are brought into the family. So I, I would just, man, love to be able to call things as they are via the fruit that we have in our lives. Like, with love and grace and truth and a pursuit of all that is holy. And, like, I don't know if the government would be different. But I do know that the world would be different. Like it would be impossible for systems to function and oppress without opposition if everybody who claimed to be Christian prioritized the immigrant, prioritized the foreigner, prioritized, prioritized the poor, prioritized the widow. Like it would, it would just be impossible for the things to be as they are. If you've been listening and you were exercising and you were in the zone running, you need to rewind it a minute and a half because Jonathan just started preaching and you could just rewind it for a second and go back. But it's fine because Jonathan, I don't, I don't disagree. I don't disagree. No, I'm not going to edit it out because you're absolutely right. Like, you know, love other people and love God as you love. Like, that's it. Like, that. that's it. Um, the... Uh, yeah. I, I I stole my friend's beatitudes piece. You know, like it's not hard. This is not. It's not a. Di- let, me, let me rephrase that. The way of Christ is extremely hard, but it's, yeah, it's extremely nice. simple. Um, right. You know what I mean? It's extremely simple, but extremely yeah. hard. So I don't want to jeopardize any more of your evenings, any of you. So, what last words would you have, either Sai or Susie, where you're like, yeah, if if you hear nothing else, please hear this. Um, and then obviously we're going to, we're going to have people go buy the book. Um, cause that's what they should do. Um, genuinely and you need to read it before you just need to read it. Um, yeah, there's a lot of powerful, 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 I can't speak powerful voices in the book and powerful stories in the book. And I think it's a proximity to stories that makes them so flipping powerful. So what would either of the two of you add? I'll go and then let Susie end it because she emphasized what a collaborative process this book was, but she really was the driving force behind the whole thing. So I'll let her uh, finish it off. Jonathan and I have known each other for a long time. And what I just felt is something that I have felt a lot of times talking to him, which is I think something and then he says it. (laughs) (laughs) So I agree with all that. I think the book to, to some degree is, is a call to just start living like we are. A minority because the the sort of fruit of what we have um, in the church in our society at large right now is so rotten and is in such need of pruning that I don't I don't necessarily want to call the majority of, of what we have right now Christ-like you know mm-hmm. Christian I know that that and I'm not trying to condemn anyone I'm not saying that people who are voting for Donald Trump are are, are lost or going to hell or anything like that right i'm just saying that um uh, i think 
the hypothetical that you're raising where we, we you know, don't have Christians in government, I think to a, to a large extent, what Jonathan is saying, and I agree with him, is we don't. So let's just start living like <laughs> we need to build something from the ground up again, rebuild something from the ground up. Another thing that I would want people to know about the book is that, you know, we've, we've talked about a whole number of things here and people have very specific concerns about stuff like abortion and critical race theory and immigration, all kinds of other things that we talked about. And people go in the book right at those subjects. Like they do not avoid anything. If you've been thinking, okay, but what about all of the uh, unborn children who yeah. will die under democratic administration. If you've been thinking, you know, what about the Marxism that infiltrates the left or whatever people go right at that stuff and you will, you will be um, mm -hmm. challenged and you will find both like resonance with a lot of our authors and you will find challenges no matter where you are on the political spectrum. I guess that a couple of things just to, to close this out. One, I, I do want to go back to that idea that, that I just mentioned that this, the fact that this book is a collective, work and, and one way we've been describing it is it's it's not a solo it's a symphony and and one uh really powerful quote from the book is by janelle austin and she talks about how you need to to be willing to listen to the experiences of others and understand how your vote impacts their livelihoods mm. and so i think that that's one of the messages of the book we hope that this is an opportunity and a really tumultuous season for folks to pause and listen to the lived experiences of those who are not like them. And those who have been impacted by this administration in really challenging and dramatic ways. We need to hear their stories. We need to understand where they're coming from. And as followers of Christ, I think let that inform our, our politics. Also, this book, as we keep saying, is a lot of it is about reimagining how the gospel should intersect our politics. And we hope and pray that it will be an opportunity for our moral and political imaginations expanded. Mm. And so, again, it's a conversation that we're inviting people into. It's not about easy answers. A lot of it is critiquing and complicating things, but we hope it's a conversation that will continue beyond November 3rd. Yeah. The book is available on Amazon and I can never remember the website correctly. It's keeping the faith book.com. Is that right? Yeah. yeah I did it. Yeah. Faith, I really struggle with that. Um, I really, really, really struggle with that. But thank you all three of you for joining me tonight and um, entertaining some hypothetical questions. And thank you as well for coordinating this and for bringing it all together. Cause it's, it's a very powerful piece. So I um, really appreciate it and I appreciate each of you coming on tonight. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah. My pleasure. I keep coming back and I hear it echoed in my brain ever since Jonathan said it. There's so many good nuggets, both in this book and in this conversation. But that part where I forget the question that I asked Jonathan, but he said, man, we just need to be able to call a thing a thing. We see something. We can call a brood of vipers a brood of vipers. Like we need to be able to call a thing a thing. There's power in that. And I also think we need to be able to hear when people are calling a thing a thing. And sometimes that thing is us. We need to hear that. We need to give others the voice needed and the power needed to call a thing a thing. Now the music that was in this episode is very powerful. And it's an album that I have been just streaming on repeat. 
And this is the test, I think, of beautiful, meaningful lyrics. It, it moved every single one of my children to silence as we all listen to the words together. Throughout this episode, you've heard the music of John Guerra, who I believe is a very prophetic voice and writes music in such a way that is moving, gripping, powerful, haunting in a good way. And so I'll end with a song that he's written called Citizens. So I really think it fits not only the theme of the book, but the theme of this conversation and the theme for a mindset of how I want to view other people, how my politics need to view other people, and what following the way of Jesus probably should sound like and look like. Pray you're well. I pray you're blessed. We'll talk soon. I have a heart full of questions, quieting all my suggestions. What is the meaning of Christian in this American life? I'm feeling awfully foolish, spending my life on a message. I look around and I wonder ever if I heard it right. Coming to you, cause I'm confused Coming to you, cause I feel used Coming to weep while I'm waiting Tell me you won't make me go I need to know there's justice That it will roll in abundance And that you're building a city Where you arrive as immigrants And you call us citizens And you welcome us as children home Rejected, misunderstood and detested You gave it all, didn't hold back You even gave up your life How can we call ourselves Christians Saying that love is a tension Between the call of the cross And between the old party line Coming to you for the mothers Who are all running for cover There is a flood from their weeping Tell me you won't make them go I need to know there is justice That it will roll in abundance And that you're building a city Where we arrive as immigrants And you call us citizens And you welcome us as children home Broke the law just to save him Working for three bucks an hour Truly you said we were equal Everyone's heart is deceitful Everyone born is illegal When love is the law of the land Coming to you for the hungry Eating the scraps of this country Didn't you swear you would feed them? Tell me you won't make them go I need to know there is justice that it will roll in abundance And that you're building a city Where we arrive as immigrants And you call us citizens And you welcome us as children home Christ who was killed, killed by a common consensus, 
Everyone screaming Barabbas, trading their God for a hero, forfeiting heaven for Rome. And coming to you, cause I'm angry. Coming to you, cause I'm guilty. Coming to you, cause you promised to leave the flock for the one. I need to know there is justice, that it will roll in abundance, and that you're building a city where we arrive as immigrants. And you call us citizens And you welcome us as children foes for my friends and I don't know my friends anymore power has several prizes handcuffs can come in all sizes love has a million disguises but winning is simply not one 